0: The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews.
1: Good afternoon, and welcome to The Authentic Living Show. You know, we all have major life transitions which come in many different forms, but these times, whether they're joyful or difficult, can be thresholds to a new adventure. How do we take the challenge to turn what appears to be a block or even a death into a threshold? How do we keep our peace even in these liminal moments? Rabbi Sherry Hirsch has come, through to, come today to talk to us about her second book, Thresholds, How to Thrive Through Life's Transitions. Rabbi Hirsch is the first female rabbi who served for eight years as the rabbi of Sinai Temple in Los Angeles. She has since left the more traditional pulpit to serve a larger, more diverse congregation. She is now a nationally recognized personality who speaks across the country and frequently appears in the national media. She also serves as spiritual consultant to Canyon Ranch Properties. Rabbi Sherry blends ancient tradition and modern day application to empower individuals to be their own spiritual guides. You are not going to want to miss this show because this is a very important topic, one which we all have to deal with at some point in our lives. Welcome, Rabbi Hirsch, to the to the Authentic Living Show. Hi, Andrea. It's so nice to be here. All right. Well, let's just jump right in here. I've really enjoyed reading the book, and I really encourage uh, uh, the rest of the listeners to to uh, to get this book and read it. It's uh, really a good read, an easy read, and one that is life changing or has the potential to be life changing. So, let's talk about what you mean by a threshold or a liminal moment. I love the mystery of a liminal moment. What?
2: What? Why are these so powerful? Well, a liminal moment comes from the word "limen," which is the Greek word for threshold, which is how I got the name and the title for the book. But really, it's when you're standing between one way of living and another way of living. I liken it to rooms and hallways. It's when you're standing in the hallway between two rooms, which you don't think that much about, but yet you spend a lot of time there. And how do we handle those thresholds moments? And I kind of play on the word threshold because typically we think of a threshold as the one that you cross when you're getting married, but there are so many other thresholds in our lives, both positive ones like getting married, but also difficult ones like getting a new job or getting fired from a job or dealing with a loss. Having a baby is a new threshold as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. These are life-changing experiences, aren't they?
2: Yeah, so Completely.
1: yeah. So these they create lots of turmoil inside of us commonly. And, and, and lots of times what happens, and you've noted this in your book, is that we feel emotions we didn't expect to feel, and we feel like there's something wrong with us for feeling those.
2: You know, as a rabbi, the question I'm asked so frequently is, what's wrong with me? Uh-huh. Which is funny, because when I trained to be a rabbi, I really thought the question people would ask is, how do I kosher my kitchen, right? Typical Jewish (laughs) ritual type questions, but they rarely ask that. Most often they came to me when they were at a threshold in their lives and felt that they weren't handling it the way they thought they should. And the question I most often heard, which broke my heart, was what's wrong with me? But I can relate because we all have moments in our lives where we feel like we're doing it wrong. Something is going awry, and something is wrong with us, and not the system, and not in that we're just not doing it right. And then we put it onto ourselves, and I think a lot of people struggle with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we have, a, a, you know, it's bad enough to have to go through the struggle, but then we judge ourselves for the way we go through the struggle, which makes it doubly difficult.
2: Yeah. yeah. So you cannot imagine how people judge themselves so harshly as they deal with the challenge itself, right? If we treated our friends, the way we treat ourselves, we'd have no friends.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, we do that terrible thing to ourselves all the time. So, what do you say? I mean, how, what it, you know? I'm ha, I've just had a baby, and I'm and I'm up all night feeding the baby, and the baby's got colic and doesn't sleep very well, and I'm tired, and sometimes I just don't even like this baby. So, yeah, what the do you say thing, to me? The first thing I say
2: to people is that it's normal to want to throw the baby out or actually to give the baby back. I remember when we had our first child, we have four children, and ours would not stop crying the first couple of nights. turns out I was not producing enough milk, and he was actually starving, and Mm -hmm. he was screaming and screaming, and my husband said to me, what's the refund policy? And (laughs) I just remember looking at him like, am I really married to you? (laughs) The fact of the matter is, every one of us has moments where this is too hard, I cannot do this. Something is wrong with me because other people seem to do it with ease. And the first thing is I want you to validate your feelings, to realize that you're not alone, that everybody feels this way. We just don't talk about it. As a rabbi, everyone talks to me, but they don't talk to each other. So the first thing is to know that if you're feeling it, everybody else, 99% of the other people are feeling it, and that small 1%, I don't know what they're feeling.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
2: The second thing is we often judge people's insides by their outsides. And then we compare our insides to their, what we think is their life. So, for example, it's a little confusing the way I said it, but we think, oh, she looks all dressed and she looks like being a mother is so easy and she has her hair done and her makeup done and she has a pretty stroller and my car's a mess. I haven't been in the shower in three days. What's wrong with me? But what we're doing is we're projecting how she feels by how she looks. And people in this day and age are so good at veiling themselves, of putting on a certain mask and projecting that everything is perfect when it is far from it. I used to say that when people came in and looked truly perfect, like there was not a hair out of place, that I knew I had to deal with the biggest problems. So I think a lot of it is first validating that You're not alone. Really understanding that this, if you're feeling it, most everyone else is because the human experience is universal. The details are different, but the experience is universal. The second is not to judge yourself or others because that judgment is often very far off. Mm -hmm. And the third is to surround yourself with people that you can be honest with. What I say is to find a real friend someone that you don't have to put a show on for, and that you can be like, I haven't showered in three days, hold my baby, I need to wash my hair. Mm-hmm. And because of that, those three tools will really help you sort of get through that grind of especially the first three to six months.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. That was a very well-rounded answer, and I think that's really true with, with, and um, and you've noted this in your book as well, that this is how we get through just about anything, is to, those three steps of having other uh, people around us recognizing what we're going through as normal, having other people around us that are supportive and, and uh, um, being able to stop judging ourselves, those are the things that sort of get us through all of it. Isn't that true?
2: And it's so funny because they're not that complicated, but they're not easy to practice. Right? It's really hard to find one person to really confide in. I always say if you take one person from each major segment of your life, like childhood, uh, 20s, 30s, then you've got four friends in your pocket by the time you're 40, you are blessed. That is more than most people. Usually mm-hmm. we can find one or two people at the most that can really weather all the difficulties of our lives and grow with us in a way that we still want to be friends with them and they want to be friends with us. So sometimes I think we're looking too hard for that perfect friend. And the other thing I tell people is not every friend gets the same information. Some friends you say... You tell certain things, and other friends, you tell other things. But you don't have to, if you don't have one friend, don't fret. You can give different friends different information, and it may be one friend's really easy to talk to about the new baby, but another friend's really easy to talk to about the new job and that the two should never meet, just because that's the way friendships are.
1: Right, right, I agree. And and the support we get
2: for from each is valid in its own realm. Absolutely. I put friends in concentric circles of A, B, C, and D. The friends in your A circle are those that are the most closest to you that you can share more details. The friends in B, a little less so. The friends in D, those are really acquaintances. And sometimes in liminal moments, friends surprise us, and they move from a C position to an A position. And we say, God, I didn't even realize she was that good of a friend, but when my mother died, She was really there for me in a way that I could have never imagined. Mm -hmm. And the reverse happens. Sometimes someone moves from A to C because we expected something different from them and yet they couldn't deliver. But I do have a cautionary tale, Andrea, and Mm -hmm. I talk about this in Thresholds in the book, which is the people that we want most at the time of challenge and difficulty to comfort us are the people that are closest to us. The problem is that they're the very worst at comforting us. And everybody says to me, why? Why is that the case? Because they love us. And people that love us don't want to see us suffer. Think about it yourself. People you love, you don't want to watch them suffer. And so because of that, we don't comfort them in the best of ways. So sometimes it's better to look outside the people you expected from for real transitions in your life that are sometimes more difficult than others.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also, to, uh, like you've just said, not just lay it all on one person, but you find room for other people. Like you might want to have a therapist that you talk about about certain things and then have a, a spouse that you talk about about other things and a friend that you talk about about other things, like you just said.
2: Yeah, that's my definition of spread the wealth.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's, really, that's a good way to put it, yeah.
2: Yeah, so in the
1: book you've also said something that is probably a, a kind of a shock to a lot of the people that are teaching and writing books out there today, you said, fear is not our fault. I want to talk to you a little bit about that, because that's one of the big issues that, in the past, you know, like 15 years, there's been such a big, I mean, you cannot open up a Facebook or, uh, or Twitter or Instagram and not find some meme out there that says, stop being afraid, you know, right. uh, you, you've got to choose not to be afraid, so what do you mean by that, fear is not our fault?
2: Well, I think there's this sense of if we're afraid, then we're somehow bad, and I actually think fear often is the great motivator for courage, and to live a courageous life is something extraordinary, right? Courage is feeling the fear and doing it anyway, because what we were taught as kids is courage is jumping in front of a racing train and saving a baby off the tracks, but the life the life possibility or the possibility that that would ever happen in your life is very slim. Real courage is having real fear and still going forward, still taking the risk and the plunge. And I think fear is really part of our genetic nature because it gives us an opportunity to experience courage. And society nowadays, I think, focuses on fear somehow being the worst thing ever in that if you feel fear, then somehow you're less of a person, I think feeling fear makes you human. It's what you do with your fear that makes you extraordinary. Mm-hmm. right? And, and it's not about the fear of just public speaking. It's, it's the fear of telling your child that you're getting a divorce or the fear of, you know, saying to someone, I'm really sorry, I screwed up. There, it's these fears that we have in everyday life that keep us from being truly courageous.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I I think the beautiful thing about that is that it allows room for us to explore our own emotions and not have to push them aside so that we can feel like we're we're brave and strong and can conquer anything.
2: Right, and it also makes us not judge our fears. It's like, ah, fear is part of the human experience. I'm going to feel fear. The question is, now what? As opposed to, why am I afraid? I mean, I make a fear list every day in in addition to a faith list, and it's great for your listeners. It's When you're feeling a lot of fear, you just make a list of all your fears, and you do it unedited, and I always laugh because somehow on my list, it always says, I fear snakes. Now, I live in Los (laughs) Angeles, in urban Los Angeles. The last time I've seen a snake, 20 years ago, when I was probably camping with my friends when I was in high school, maybe 30 years ago to date myself, but I never see a snake, and yet that fear still stays within me, and I look at it each day, and I realize, oh, You know what? It's just part of who I am. It's just part of who I am. But on the flip side, I also make a list of now that I want to live courageously, what action will I take? And so I often joke with the snake one, I always say, I will not visit any pet store that has snakes, because we're not going to run into snakes in urban Los Angeles.
1: Right. And if you do, it's probably raining snakes.
2: Right. Right. <laughs> right. I think there's a plague and God is is giving us a message It's something <laughs> <Right>. very different.
1: <laughs> right. So, yeah, and, and 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 that fear thing is 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 one of those things that makes us believe we must not have faith. That's one of the, you you juxtapose those two words interestingly enough in your listing there that that we tend to think, well, if I'm afraid, I must not really have faith in God or faith in life or, you know, whatever. So, can you say something about that?
2: Yeah, so I think it's interesting because one of the things I really stress in Threshold is about having faith in yourself. And it's a little bit shocking for a rabbi to say, I'm not going to talk about faith in God. And it's not that I don't believe in a God, and it's not that I don't talk about this. But I think that real faith begins with you. And actually, the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew word for to pray is in the reflexive. So essentially, when you pray, it is a, it is a prayer to yourself, Right? It begins with you. That real faith starts with you. And I think we have this assumption that if we're afraid, we're not really trusting. But the question is, who do we need to trust, right? It's not, oh, we're not trusting God because not all of us believe in God. I mean, there's 88 names for God in the Bible, and there's only 500 words used over and over again. So almost one-fifth of the words are dedicated to the name of God. And they come in all different shapes and sizes and all different descriptions. So what you believe or how you believe is really up to you. But real faith begins with you. Do I trust that I can have this fear and it won't annihilate me, that my world will not be over? And I think a lot of us think, oh, of course this fear is not going to kill me. But some fears really feel like they will. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we are really afraid. We think, you know, our husbands asked for a divorce and we think, the fear of living on our own will actually kill us but in fact that's not the case.
1: Mhm.
2: And mean yeah, we have joy. So- but it'll bring something different.
1: Yes. Yes. We have irrational fears about our fears, don't we?
2: <laughs> I never say irrational because I think, you know, emotions are never rational. They're just who we are. That's and right. this idea that we would be reasonable in all areas of our lives I think is overrated. Yep. You know, okay. I think it's good to be overly passionate and sometimes unreasonable. It makes us know that we're really alive.
1: Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Well, we just have a few more minutes before the break, but you know, you talked just a minute ago about what why faith in God is not required. But I guess I want to I want to speak a little bit more to that whole thing of because as a therapist, I see people all the time who don't like you said who believe that you know, no, I can't trust me. I can't trust me to get through this. I can't trust me to know what to do. I can't trust me to, to, uh, to find my own way. I, no, you're asking me to have faith in something I can't have faith in. So what do you do about that?
2: Well, this one, Andrea, really broke my heart, and I see it so often in my current practice and as a rabbi, is people really don't trust themselves. And it has nothing to do with whether they can make a decision about which movie to see or which market to shop in, but they really believe on some level that they're fundamentally untrustworthy. And it comes usually from some sort of prior experience where they felt they made a mistake, right? That they made a decision. It didn't work out the way they thought. And therefore, the conclusion is, I am untrustworthy, and I always say that's a very linear and narrow way of thinking. We're not built like that. Sometimes we are. We make a decision and it doesn't come out like we like because our expectations of how it was supposed to come out were not realistic. And it came out different, and maybe that different is supposed to take us somewhere else. And that's supposed to model for us trust as opposed to teach us that we're untrustworthy.
1: Yeah, so let's take a break now. We're going to come back and finish talking about that. We'll be back in just a minute with more from Rabbi Sherry Hirsch on Your Thresholds. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel
0: Are you a spiritual seeker? Have you always pondered the deeper questions in life? Have you looked at many spiritual paths and found some answers but are looking for more? The Open Door, brought to you by the Summit Lighthouse, brings you each week practical spiritual teachings and tools that promote self-mastery, higher consciousness, and the opportunity to connect with the Ascended Masters. Join Tom Schumacher and Terry Kennedy as we explore the universe of spirituality. Live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, on the 7th Wave Channel. Ask Theo Live, channels to a new reality. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live, channels to a new reality, Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews.
1: And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. AIHT offers degrees in interfaith and interspiritual educational programs that enable you to not only find your own authentic spirituality, but to bring your unique gift to the world in service upon graduation. At AIHT, you can get a master's, doctorate, or ministerial bachelor's degree, and the doctoral programs are broken down so that you may get a PhD, a doctor of ministry, or in the holistic theology program, a doctor of theology degree. The programs in which you may get these degrees are holistic theology, holistic health, Holistic Ministries, Metaphysics, and Parapsychology. These courses offer depth and meaning to not only your own spiritual search for truth and meaning, but to your capacities to bring your healing, loving, guiding gifts to the world. The population of students includes doctors and lawyers, healers, nurses, ministers, counselors, psychologists, social workers, nutritionists, herbologists, homeopathy practitioners, psychics, mediums, and many others who have a special gift, but need to learn to hone it and credential it. It also includes students who simply wish to enhance their own profound spiritual journeys. What's most important to AIHT's model is the exploratory nature of the studies that reach to the depths of all the world's religions, traditions, and paths, and even to transcend them to find the mystical core of them all, to facilitate your own journey to your own authentic spirituality by utilizing, as your text-writing teachers, spiritual experts from all over the world. You can learn more about what's offered by going to www.aiht.edu. Or if you'd like to talk directly to the admissions director, call Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. That's 800-650-4325. You know, Oprah says education is the key to unlocking the world, a passport to freedom. Call and get your passport today. And today we're talking uh, to uh, Rabbi Sherry Hirsch about her book, Thresholds, and we're talking about those moments in life where things are different, where you're standing in the middle of, between one life and another life where you're trying to figure out where you're going to go next and all the emotions and and difficulty sometimes that comes with those liminal moments. And you were talking, uh, Sherry, just before the break, and I had to interrupt you. I apologize for that, uh, uh, about this whole thing about uh, why we don't necessarily need to have faith in God. It's not required for this journey. And uh, so I'm going to let you finish talking about that.
2: Yeah, what I said, thank you, Andrea. Uh, What I said was that, in fact, we often tell ourselves that we're absolutely not trustworthy. And we use some sort of prior experience where something turned out in a way that we didn't plan as proof that we're not trustworthy. So we make a decision between two jobs and we pick out one and we go there and six months later it doesn't work out we deduce from that, oh, my God, this shows that I don't make good decisions. When, in fact, that's not what it shows. What it shows was you had a choice between two jobs. You chose one that you thought was best in that moment, and it led to a different outcome than you anticipated. And maybe that will take you to another place that you didn't anticipate. And we don't know that yet. And it's the reason at the end of our lives we're so good at saying, now everything makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because in hindsight, we can see all the entire story, but along the way we only see the chapters and often we deduce the wrong messages from each chapter.
1: Right, right. And so it's also a kind of a trust in life too that we begin to develop, that that we are somehow being uh, allowed opportunity after opportunity even in the darkest moments. Is that true?
2: Absolutely. And I think people often get confused with this optimism or positivity, which is this optimism or positivity idea is that everything will turn out good in the end Mm -hmm. i think faith is different than that it's that things will turn out period not good or bad it's actually ending that sort of binary system of good and bad or literally leaving out the adjectives it's just that things will turn out and it will be different than we will expected but we will get on the other side and we will keep moving forward regardless of what's thrown at us
1: Yes, and I love what you just said about that. That is so very important, this good-bad thing. And it's so uh, sort of harped on today that we, we need to think positive all the time and, 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 and avoid negative feelings and that kind of stuff. And and that really doesn't help us to take these journeys that you're talking about, does it? Right,
2: and some of life is very negative and messy. And there, we can't be positive all the time. I mean, in my own spirit experience, my mother died very young of brain cancer. And I would say for a good 18 months after her death and even during her, the end of her illness, I wasn't positive. I didn't have an optimistic look on all things and I didn't feel happy. And I think if someone said to me, you know, you've really got to be more optimistic, even knowing that it was such a terminal diagnosis, I would have wanted to slug them. Instead, you know, it was like, okay, this isn't how I would want it to be, but this doesn't mean that I want to give up and call the whole thing off and just quit. It means that... I still have faith that I will keep going, regardless.
1: Right. Yeah, and that faith is in our is in the fact that we are still here asking whether or not we have the
2: faith, you know? Absolutely, some- Andrea. I can't think of anything more true of a statement. If we stay in the question and continue to persist and ask it over and over again, that is an act of faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I talk about yeah. that in my first book, and We Plan God Laughs, in a chapter called Questioning. And what I say there is, in fact, when we question is a true act of faith, and that you think faith is only when you believe, but it's when you stay in the conversation is when you truly believe.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, that's very well said. Very well Especially said. because the
2: answers come out differently. I mean, it's interesting in Judaism, which is my orientation, there's no expectation that you believe in God from the moment you're born until the moment you die. The expectation is that you believe in monotheism, in one God. Because the tradition understands that there will be many times in your life of which you will doubt the existence of God. For example, after a death, or after a devastating illness, or a very challenging time in your personal life. And it couldn't be more true, right? If I had to believe in God all the time, I would be the worst rabbi ever if that was the requirement. But if I have to continue to ask the question, is there a God, is there one God? How do I strive for that belief? How do I find faith in challenging times? Why did this happen to me, and how do I go on? That's being in the conversation, and that's really what I think true faith is about.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh huh. Yes, because it's those are life affirming questions. They mm-hmm. are all about uh, all about the meaning of life and and the essence of what we're doing here. So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So you talk about this being a journey from the head to the heart, and I can't say how much I, I, I really believe that. I agree that we're that's the longest journey we take and also the most important, um, and yet there are so many who live so much from emotion that there's little room for logic or common sense. So, you know, we have these sort of um, dichotomies about how we live. We either live from the head or we live from the heart, it seems, and, 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 and the people who live from the head want to talk ugly about the people who live from the heart and the people who live from the heart just don't understand people who live from the head. But there's a way to bring
2: both to the table. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. In Judaism, and Hebrew, the word for head and heart is the same word. It's mm-hmm. lamedvav, which means both head and heart. Because to them, at the seat of reason was emotion and at the seat of emotion was reason. Which is so different from the way we think about it today, right? We think that those two are polar opposites, and you're either being reasonable or you're being emotional. Mm-hmm. And often women are accused of being overly emotional, and men are accused of being overly irrational. Mm-hmm. But Judaism never saw it like that, that when you really have touched your live, the Hebrew word, what you've touched is that deep part of you that's able to sit at the seat of reason and emotion, and make decisions from that place. And I think it's an incredible ideal as well as a a beautiful image because in every decision, there's some emotion, there has to be, and there has to be some reason, right? We're not animals. We don't act and react just out of survival needs. So how do we find that place where we're both acting out of emotion and out of literally reason, but that they're coming from the same place. And I always say it's a long road from the head to the heart, but when we close that gap, it makes us live very well.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I agree completely. And that's very interesting that there's one word for both of those. I, I might get you to email me that word. I'd love to see the spelling of that, because that's beautiful.
2: Well, it's so funny. In English, the way you spell it is L-E-V, and it's a very common name in Israel to name your child that, which is oh. powerful in itself.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah, that makes sense.
2: Okay, so... You know, this is
1: something else that I see commonly, and I bet you do too. As a therapist, I see that people very commonly are, are going through one of these liminal moments, and they uh, are having emotions that don't even come from the present situation; they come from the past, and 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 so they're reacting as if what's happening today is the same thing that happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. And uh, so you mentioned that in the the thresholds, and I wanted to ask if you'd elaborate on that just a little bit.
2: Well, so many of our present-day stories are historically connected, right? The way we Mm -hmm. narrate a story about our own life is really infused with historical data, right? We had a horrible experience with men when we were younger, and so as an adult we say, we don't like men. When that's not really our present narrative, it's just that our historical data it tells us that that's the way it is. And people often, in addition to that, confuse drama and trauma. You know, the best way I can describe it is that trauma is that we have been violated in a way that has changed us fundamentally and it will take a lifetime to repair. And we can all know what trauma is from serving in a war to being physically or violently or sexually abused. And drama is all the drama that happens in our life, our mother's not talking to us, we're having a fight with our brother, this one's angry at us because we're sitting at the dinner table and she wasn't saying the right thing to us or she sat in the wrong seat at Thanksgiving. But often we exaggerate drama to the elevated, to the place of trauma. And that's when we get into trouble because we start saying, oh, I don't like this and I don't like that and it's, it was so traumatic for me when really it was dramatic and it's important to really distill what is the part that is the present and what part's my history. What part of this story is related to now versus what is it related to then? Because often we confuse our friends in the present when we start talking about something and it's completely from our past, and yet they have no idea what we're talking about mm-hmm. because they don't, they're not in it. They weren't in that past. So it's right. a very confusing thing, and it's really hard to part parse out for people, and often we want to drag our childhood into our present to give us an excuse, you know? We had bad dating experiences when we were young, and now we find ourselves divorced. I keep using that example. I don't know why. That's my top example today, but um, we find ourselves divorced, and we don't want to date because our prior experiences 25 years ago were so dramatic and so difficult, and we use that to inform our present, which is we were a different person then. Our life is different. It's a different dating now. So you can't use that data in the same way.
1: Yeah, and it really does take that sort of inner sorting, doesn't it, to be able to to sort out what emotions are coming from the past and which ones are really relevant to what's going on right here and right now.
2: I tell people to write out in columns historical, dramatic, and traumatic, and really to sort out what are those the differences between them and what categories they fall under. Because there is a lot of confusion between dramatic and traumatic, and also what's historical and what's present. Mm-hmm. And when we start to really do that, especially when we're parenting our children, sometimes we're parenting them from a place of our own drama that has nothing to do with their present.
1: Right, and reacting and, and, and um, interacting with our partners in the same way that we're, I'm um, acting toward you as if you're, like, you're my mother or my father when actually you're not even thinking or, or feeling what my mother and father felt and did, you know. You
2: can't imagine, I'm sure you hear it in your practice too, Andrea, how many people say to me, you know, I feel like sometimes I'm talking to my spouse and I'm talking to him like my father. Or mm-hmm. I feel like my, uh, I hear from men, I feel like my wife is sounding like my mother. How often I hear that because mm-hmm. it's the way we, put the lens of our history into our current situation. It's not that our spouse is talking to us like our mother. It's that that resonates for us, and so we infuse it with that memory. So it's very important to parse them out very hard. It's helpful to talk to a therapist or to your clergy person if you find you can't do it on your own.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so you talk, uh, and I I really love this whole idea that you talk about in the book, Thresholds. Um, You talk about a weight box. I want you to tell us all about your weight box.
2: So this is my favorite part of the book that I get to talk about in a public way because I find it so helpful for people. And it's something I discovered on my own and it has changed my life in so many ways for the better that I had to share it with my readers, which is that, In our age of instant information and instant everything, we've become very instant reactors, right? We get an email, we don't want our inbox to be overly stuffed, and we shoot and fire back another email. Then they fire back another email. And because we don't have the gestures that you have in person or tone, what happens in those emails can go very awry very quickly. So what I developed and what I encourage people to develop is a file on their computer, usually on their desktop if you're computer savvy, and it's called the wait box. And every email, positive, negative, incendiary, neutral, before you answer it, you write a draft and you place it in the wait box for 24 hours and you let it simmer and marinate. I have to tell you, Andrea, the first two years I did this, I never once sent the exact same email 24 hours later. I bet. In many cases, I sent an entirely different email. Because what we say in the moment in an age of reactivity, in an age of instantaneous responsibilities, of so much so fast, is very different than what we'd say with a little bit of pause. And we need the pause in our lives, and we also need that pause. We need to insert that pause because nowhere else are they inserting it in our lives now.
1: Yes. If you think yes. about it,
2: our life used to be—you know—when you called for information, you'd hit four one one, and then you'd wait, and there would be a pause. There was all these places where there were pauses, of which gave us time to rethink, to reevaluate. But now there are no pauses. We click in the number we want into the computer, and there it is. Yep. So with those pauses already in our lives, we need to create them.
1: Yes, absolutely. And there's many ways to do that. We're going to talk some more about that right after the break. So stay tuned for more from Rabbi Sherry Hirsch on her book, Thresholds. You want to be here for the rest of this.
0: Is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Are you ready to shift into higher consciousness? Are you ready for contact with beings from higher dimensions? Ancient and new spiritual technologies will help you take that evolutionary step. Find out more about this powerful shift when you tune in to Conscious Evolution Radio with Ann Gelsheimer. Let's help humanity evolve, bringing in the best possibilities and ideas that our world needs right now. Conscious Evolution Radio can be heard live every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Why spiritual spelunking? Why tending to our inner garden? Why devoting time to inner being? When so much external doing calls upon us. An Indian sage put it wisely. Your own self-realization is the greatest service you can render the world. Join host Geel Asselin as he serves as both guide and companion on the journey within. Nurturing the spiritual spelunker in all of us can be heard every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern time and 12 noon Pacific time on the Voice America 7th Wave channel. visionary this is the voice america seventh wave channel you're listening to authentic living with andrea matthews we want to hear from you if you have a question or comment about today's show call in now toll free one 472 5795 That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews.
1: I'm real excited to tell you about uh, the Super Soul Sunday series that's starting back this Sunday, October the 4th at 7 p.m., a change in time. It used to be in the morning, now it's in the evening. So at 7 p.m. Eastern and Pacific on OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network, Oprah sits down for another eye-opening conversation with Brene Brown, research professor at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work and New York Times best-selling author to discuss the global conversation she has ignited on courage, vulnerability, shame, and worthiness. Brene talks with Oprah about her pioneering work on vulnerability that she believes is the path to more love, belonging, creativity, and joy but that in living this brave life, we are inevitably going to stumble and fall. Brene's latest research, outlined in her new book, Rising Strong, focuses on people who are leaning into discomfort and lifting themselves up after a setback. They also discuss how to own our stories of struggle, that rising strong after a fall is how we cultivate wholeheartedness, the process that teaches us the most about who we are. So don't miss this enlightening new Super Soul Sunday show, airing again this Sunday, October the 4th, 7 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, on OWN. And that just gives us a great segue back into what we were talking about, uh, Sherry, uh, just before the break, uh, about your weight box, because this is one of those sort of tools that we use to help us do these things that you're that, that were just being discussed on, the, on Super Soul Sunday. Tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Well, I was saying that, and I love Brene Brown, and I love the OWN Network, so I'm so glad that you've talked about them. But we live in such immediacy. We even, the way we argue with each other, we talk so fast, we get in, we, you know, we don't even have time to have arguments. We sometimes are rushing between things. We're trying to check things off that to-do list. And so creating places of real pause and real waiting is what's going to give us the tools to better the conversation and not feel that everything, like you and I discussed in the break that every conversation has to be like a TV show where it's witty and funny and challenging, but that we can make mistakes in our conversations and we can figure it out and we can talk about it and grow together. I think that's more of the human experience than that everything is perfectly crafted. And we forget that the writers of those TV shows have spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours crafting every preposition and capital in those scripts. So it's not as... Effortless as we think it is.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting that we would even want to model our lives after that, <laughs>
2: isn't it? Um, but we Well, do. I think also because, you know, that's where we're getting a lot of our messaging. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not getting it. We're not getting it on the subway. We're not getting it in a taxi cab because we're mostly isolated in those situations. But in our home, when we see these other families, modern family, life in pieces, all the way back to the Cosby show, which is probably a no-no now. <laughs> but yeah. all those shows really were where we saw other families because we don't really see inside others' families. When we go over to someone else's house, we're seeing what they want us to see. And so we don't really have an honest look. And so that's what we think we're supposed to build our life upon. But in fact, that's just a fantasy. Yeah. yeah. And nothing can be resolved in a half hour. I have yet to uh, see that happen, Andrea. <laughs> yeah, really? Really? Not in my life, anyway. Yeah, I Not agree. in my life. I have yet to see, you know, having two teenagers, uh, if someone has a secret on how to resolve all their angst in a half an hour, come on board and call us and tell us all about it. I'd be the next multimillionaire if they can do yeah. that. <laughs> I think they'd be the next Bill Gates. Yeah,
1: there you go. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, In in terms of waiting, one of the things we tend to do is we wait to get back to the person we used to be. I hear people say this all the time in my practice. I just want to get back to the person I used to be, and I frequently say, well, if we go back to where we were, we end up where we are. And uh, You say in your book, backwards is not an option,
2: so tell us why it isn't. I love what you say about that. If we go back to where we were, we end up where we are. We can never go back to, you can't live life backwards. You can only live life forward. And even if you think that you could go back to, quote, that normal, you are not the same person if you went back there having had the experience. So let me give you an example. You get a job and you get fired from it. And you say, God, I just like, wish I could go back to the time when I had the other job and everything was great. But you're not the same person that was in the job that you got fired from because that experience completely changed you for the better. Maybe not. It doesn't feel that way, but it's changed you and it's grown you, and it's grown your soul. And so, this idea of getting back to normal, I think, is really—it's thin. It just doesn't happen. We can't live our life in reverse. And so, what I—I always say to people is, "How do I go forward to my new normal?"
1: Mm, good question. That's that's. Or I'm with, that.
2: even the language I like better is, "What's the next room I'm moving to?" Mm-hmm. I'm in a hallway. What's the next room?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so do you do you hear the stories when they come back and tell you about the next room? What's the next room look like? What's it what yes, what transition? I have, so many,
2: I have so many good stories and one of the things in my first book and We Plan God Laughs, I got a lot of feedback from people, which was funny because when you write a book you and I know you know this, you can't really imagine that people are gonna read it and have feedback for you. But in the first book I didn't really think about that. So in the second book I was very in thresholds, I was very aware that there would be readers and people who had thoughts about it. And I realized in the first book that I wrote a lot of stories that all had happy endings, which was not my experience, but I felt like every story that I cited was one that I should share a happy ending. And I got a lot of feedback from readers is that's not really true to life. And they were absolutely right. It wasn't true to life. I just didn't narrate those other stories. Mm. So what I often tell people is the next room may not look like the happy ending that you imagine, but it's the next room. So a woman that gets a woman whose husband just died the next room is life as a single and she comes back to me and she says this is a very difficult room but then a year later she's in a new room in which she may have found love or she's gotten a position working or she's more available to her children or she more has more time to develop herself things that were unexpected and maybe she wouldn't have wished them upon her but she's able to acclimate in the new room and realize that while she does not wish that her husband passed away, that, that her life is not over and she didn't end with his death as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the, that's the
1: surprise, isn't it? That's the part. We, the mystery of that other room is that we don't know what emotions are going to pop up. We don't know what new ground we're going to find ourselves on.
2: And people are so often surprised. They have a script of what that next room looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to be so happy or even we're going to have our family of four and our whole life is going to be perfect. And what they find is it's messy. the, The car doesn't fit all four of them, they need to get a minivan, they promised themselves they'd never get a minivan, and then they're in the room, and they have the minivan, and they have the four kids, and it's noisy, and it's messy, and yet it's some of the me- most meaningful moments of their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we don't, we cannot, my friend David Wolpe likes to say, we cannot forfeel. we can't anticipate how we're going to feel in the future, given a certain situation, and I can't think of anything more true. We think we can, but we can't.
1: Yeah. Nor can we necessarily predict the situation.
2: Sometimes Never. We can, I but, cannot uh, tell you how many people tell me affirmatively, now that this has happened to me, this is what's going to happen next. And I can't help but smile because <laughs> I want to say, oh, I'm sorry, did you have a crystal ball that I was not aware of? Right. Because so rarely does it, come, does it come out like that. But I always get a good chuckle. And then they often come back to me and say, you know, Rabbi, it's so different than I anticipated. And I, I like to say, Really? That's sure, uh-huh. <laughs> and
1: they always get a good <laughs> chuckle then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's your back to your uh, your first book. We plan God lives. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah that that whole idea of planning out our lives is one of the American themes that I think is not necessarily so. Um, you know, uh, the old Porgy and Best song. It ain't necessarily so. Is this idea that. That we should have a ten-year goal, a five-year goal, and we should have steps to get there. And if we don't, we're not, you know, going to be successful. And you know, I just I want to ball that all up as a piece of paper and throw it in the trash because it well, just doesn't work.
2: Old Andrea, there's such an old-school mentality of you do X, Y, and Z, and you get this right. You go to this right preschool, and you end up at Harvard. And that's such an old-school model. First of all, it's not true. Second of all, you may not belong at Harvard and may never want to go to Harvard, right? Nothing against the crimson red. But part of it is that that's such an old model. And in fact, nowadays people have many careers and the route to success, that feeling of feeling really fulfilled and that you've made the world a better place comes from many different avenues. And it's the opposite of linear. And some of the most successful people that I see in life. And it's not always people that are famous. It's rarely often people that are famous, wealthy, rich, or thin, or powerful. People that are really successful, that they feel that their life has meaning and that they matter and they feel that they've left the world a little bit better. Those people, their path towards success is often very circuitous, which I think is often, you know, very telling as well.
1: And sometimes very scary at points in there.
2: Absolutely. How many times do we hear a story of this person was on the, they threw their last dime into this business knowing that if it didn't succeed, you know, they didn't know where they'd turn, they'd be living in their car. I actually have a client that he and his wife, he had a passion for making movies and they mortgaged their house. They put, they sold their cars. I mean, they did everything. And they put their last effort into this movie. And his story does have an incredibly happy ending because, um, It became an Oscar winner, but it was his first movie. He used all his money to fund it. I mean, it was really a magical story. Mm. But I remember very clearly when they were putting everything on the line and eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and really struggling. And that one really was a shocker to all of us. And I think they've really maintained the friends that they had before because they realized those were the friends that actually cared deeply for them, which I think is always important.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. and we don't know how it's going to turn out and and there's no guarantee that we'll put all of our last dimes into a business and it will go, it may not go even then. That's the
2: lottery win story, right? That's the story that's like the one in a million. The actual story is it just turns out differently and we get through and that's the more frequent story. Rarely does, I mean I don't plan on winning an Oscar, I don't make movies, you know, Mm -hmm. rarely is that lottery win the norm. That's, that's the once-in-a-lifetime, but I'm not sure that's the goal.
1: I, I totally agree. I would think the goal is something more akin to uh, developing our consciousness so that we can become more aware of our soul.
2: Yeah, my mother used to say, and I don't know if I shared this with you once before, but forgive me if I have, is she used to say, I don't care if you're happy. I don't care. Like when other mothers would say, I just want my child to be happy. My mother would say, I want you to leave the world a better place. Happy, mm-hmm. schmappy cares if you're happy i want you to leave the world better than when you found it yeah and we would say to her that's a very come on mom but she was a very bright woman and what she was saying is happiness comes and goes but leaving the world a little better and leaving a legacy and a mark in a really significant way bring children into the world helping a mother serving others was really what she felt we were here to do and that was really the definition of success right
1: well, we're just about out of time, so I want you to tell us about where you might be able to be contacted if you um, have a webpage and things like that so that people can get in touch with you if they want to. So
2: I love to hear from my listeners and from my readers, and my website is www.SheriHirsch, it's an odd spelling, dot com. It's not like the wine, it's an E instead of a Y. And I love, there you can find all kinds of daily inspiration and prayers and memes and Instagrams, all kinds of stuff to lift you up. I'm also on Facebook and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, and I love just hearing from my readers, and so please email me. I read all of them myself, and I just love it. It really makes, I feel like we're all students and teachers and one another, and it really helps me become a better student and a better teacher
1: absolutely thank you so much Dr. Sherry Hirsch for being on the show today I've really enjoyed talking to you and I love the book and I really encourage our listeners to, to go and get this book and read it because it really can, can be a life changer so thank you again for being on the thank show thank you so much for having me Andrea okay alright so next week we'll be back again you want to uh, be back again next week we've got another great show coming up and remember your job should you choose to accept it is to give birth to yourself